South Asian Voices is a safer Asian Indian family wellness podcast to raise questions around patriarchy and to challenge the outdated gender norms that perpetuate domestic violence in our community. Through this podcast, we bring to you individuals who are working hard to break the cycle of violence and to create a world where women would be considered equal. So today we have with us Kamal Dhillon, who is the author of Black and Blue Sari and a newly released book, I Am Kamal, Survivor to Thriver. She's a domestic violence survivor with a horrific story of inhuman suffering, which she bravely shares with the world. Through her courageous story, this inspirational speaker exposes her personal journey of living through a horrendous string of violence and torture throughout her 12-year marriage. Kamal's stories are also about how she triumphantly broke free from her shackles. She now inspires and motivates others and challenges them to break free from unacceptable domestic situations. Kamal's stories will affect you, disturb you, enrage you, and open your eyes to the reality and severity of domestic violence. Her talks are powerful, they are real. Kamal survived many attempts on her life. She has had 10 jaw surgeries as a result of the violence she suffered and now lives with an artificial jaw. What was meant to silence her has now become the source of her loud call, source of her loud call to arms, a voice for change. A mother of four children, grandmother to four, Kamal has been described as a powerhouse with the ability to encourage men, women, and young adults to change their life trajectories in a meaningful way. Above all, Kamal is a role model to the countless women continuing to struggle in the prison of their homes. She's the beacon of hope to them and continues to be a voice to the voiceless. Welcome to the podcast, Kamal. I am so honored to be with you and honored to share a little bit of my wisdom and my experience with your audience. So thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much, Kamal. So uh, you have been through a lot of uh, domestic violence yourself, and this is what we are seeing in the communities uh, over a period of time. So my first question to you is that domestic violence is a problem that is prevalent worldwide and it affects women and children the most, though men are also not untouched. What do you think is the reason behind this kind of behavior where the individuals are not treated as humans and face physical, mental, and financial abuse? Yeah, you know, abuse, I call it the pandemic. It has spread like wildfire. There isn't much, you know, um, discipline begins at home. And when we, as parents, uh, differentiate how we treat our daughters and how we treat our sons, uh, I think that is the beginning of telling them that you're a boy going to grow up into a man and you got to be tough. You can't take abuse. And I've heard a lot of parents in, you know, all my worldwide tours and, you know, just sitting with people sitting with families, well-meaning families that are now grooming their boys to grow up, to be strong and not to take, you know, excuse my word, but crap from anyone. Um, you know, I've heard fathers when young boys have come home from school and said, you know, so-and-so pushed me in school. The father will say, you know, you be a man, you fight back. You know, so we're, and then there's also the uh, stability at home where if the home isn't a safe place, a home is where there's complete violence, that is what our children are going to see. And that's where my story comes into place is, you know, I went in from a healthy, safe home, but a strict home. Um, into a home of chaos of, you know, 
uncertainty. You never knew what the next moment was like and how, um, you know, we were walking on eggshells like daughters, daughter-in-laws were walking on eggshells. And so, you know, there are many, many reasons for this abuse. But, you know, I hear people's excuse now and I tell them, you know, there's a shelf life that for everything. If your father was, you know, growing up um, this way, you had 20, 30, 40 years to get help, to recognize that you don't want to be your father. So, you know, to say to them, there's a shelf life. Similarly, for a victim, if I, you know, uh, went on day in, day out, told my counselors, everybody I met, I'm sad, I'm depressed, I was abused, he's abusing me. There comes a time when people stop hearing. They don't want to listen because we all have to take some ownership. And that's will be my theme is to not just share a story, a very sad story with your audience, but to let them know a way out. And sometimes, you know, we just have to give them a little bit of a shake and say, hey, we're behind you. If I can do it, as you read in my intro, I've had 10 jaw surgeries. You know, you look at my face and you probably, if you were to dissect it, you'd say, oh yeah, I see a little bit of a lump here. You know, I see this, I see that. Um, but if I were to move my hair and turn my face, you'd see all of this, both sides, yeah, where my face has been through, you know, so much. And from down here to my chin is all metal, which means I don't feel my face. I have very little ability. My eyes blink, but in the next surgery, it may stop blinking. So, you know, when I speak and I train and, you know, part of the uh, work that I do is I train law enforcement, I train judges, I train doctors, I you know, train workers, and then I speak to victims, victims' families, you know, and children in school, because a lot of children are told, whatever happens, you can't tell anybody in school, because you'll be taken away. So we have instilled so many layers of fear in that little child, that as he grows older, anybody that comes to him with a smile and, and an offer to make money, to you know, be the best and the most powerful person. You know what he does? He joins them. And then we wonder, why are boys in gangs? Why are they shooting and killing? It's because they're taking out that frustration that they couldn't. It is all built up. So, you know, part of... Uh, why this happens, why is it worldwide? We are not giving enough attention to this pandemic that's destroying our children. Our, you know, um, I, when I go to women's only groups and I'll say, okay, how many of you are completely healthy in this room? Completely healthy, not one. What's, you know, and then I'll say, okay, call out some of the things you have, you know, and the diabetes, high cholesterol, high, you know, high blood pressure, you know, all sorts of things. Where did you get it from? Stress. Where did that stress come from? Well, I live in fear. I've lived in fear for my, of my father, who was an alcoholic, beating up my mother. Then I had a boyfriend who was also abusive and possessive. Then my husband is very controlling. It's well, true. It's very true, Kamal. You have just kind of hit the nail on the head. And I believe that that's where we need to kind of that fear, that patriarchal control of the woman, their bodies, their psyche even. So um, no, definitely, definitely. Yeah, please go ahead. Yeah. Yes. And so, you know, um, when we're dealing with an abused battered woman, you know, there's layers and layers of pain and toxics 
you know, what we only see from the outside is a frail, fearful woman who needs help, but is very afraid to ask because she's been programmed and poisoned all her life to say no, to fear authorities, to fear social workers, to fear any kind of good person that's coming because you know, the, the brainwashing she has received from her abusers is they are the enemy. They are going to make it worse for you. Yeah. And so you will see that a woman, even though she's wanting all this help, like right now, she's still holding back. She's so fragile that we have to almost handle her with such care because she's breaking. Yeah, that's that's so true. And thank you for uh, giving this perspective, Kamal, because most of the time we have been working with women and we are trying to reach out to men as well and we are talking to them as well. And uh, like in the previous podcast, we talked to someone and uh, the speaker said that we are already talking, we are talking to the already converted people. So it's, it's really important, like you brought out the point that the men had a lot of time to think and also to change what they have seen. So this is where the change needs to happen. So thank you for bringing that point. And, uh, and that brings me to the next question, which is more about the individual who is going through abuse, because uh, there's a lot of uh, stress, like you said, there's a lot of fear that is there. And also there is also a lot of connection with the kids, the fear of losing them. So as a woman, uh, it did affect you and it did change you a lot. And you have become a kind of a very big example how you have to leave the abuse and move ahead like you just mentioned a few minutes ago. So do you think it changes the whole idea of identity of a woman when the abuse goes on for a very long time? In fact, for me, my identity got lost within hours, hours of getting married. I became Mrs. somebody else's last name. I became a daughter-in-law with their set of rules. I had to immediately take all that I learned in my 18 years with my loving family, all the good values they had instilled in me and flush it and forget it ever existed because now I was completely given a new identity, a new set of rules. And if I did not abide by these rules, by this new identity, then I didn't belong there. Then I was just as good as dead. And, you know, um, one of the questions I open my talks with is, if it was that bad, why didn't you just leave? And... Even yesterday, I did a podcast and the question came up and the host was very apologetic when she asked me. She said, it's a very offensive question. And, you know, I'm used to that question. But yeah, it is a very offensive question when you're asking a victim. Really, what you're saying to this victim, it must not have been that bad because you stayed. Yeah. And so we stay because you didn't come to help us. We stayed because the way, I'm gonna put it in a way uh, to really give you a visual. When I looked at you, had you looked at me, you would have seen my eyes. You would have seen the fear because that's where we recognize fear through our eyes, then you would have seen my tears. And if you had looked closer, you would have seen me either whisper to you, please. You would have seen me even do this or say help. But you were too busy. You went on your phone. You were in the bathroom putting lipstick calling somebody, talking about shopping. You failed me. You had one opportunity 
And I had that only opportunity because I went there, I found you, and I looked into your eyes. You did not look back. And so when you ask me, why didn't you leave? Well, let me ask you, why didn't you step forward and do something? I am going to reach to the audience that are not victims, that are bystanders, that are family members, that are, you know, not, you know, have never really have a heart for the victims, but don't know where to start. And I've come across men who say, how do I help? What do I do? Well, when you see a woman just looking down, just looking at her watch or constantly at her phone, has no smile, like she's zombie looking, maybe approach her. Are you okay, ma'am? Are you okay? You know, your one word makes the world of difference to a victim. Just sitting there and just saying, hey, I'm here for you. Yeah. You may not know me, but this is, you know, just like a paramedic would, you know, go to uh, an unconscious person or conscious person on the floor and say, hi, what's your name? I'm so-and-so. This is what I do. I'm a paramedic. You know, I'm going to do this. Like walk them through. And maybe give you contact if you feel safe. If there are children, you know, I've gone to the point where the victim has refused to talk and I know that she's in grave danger. I've gone away and I've called the police and I said, I don't know what danger she is in, but she is. And so, you know, sometimes we don't know how to help, but let's do, let, and think of the alternative if you do nothing. Yes, that's true. And that's very, very important. Because most of the time, there is also the I, I won't blame the victims, because I feel that there is a lot of fear, they are already going through a lot of abuse and torture. And there's always this fear of life, if you are being threatened, that if you go out, reach out to someone, you will uh, get more abuse, or you'll get more beatings. So who's going to do that, right? And the other thing, like you said, is to notice the signs of abuse which is a training that is very, very important for the community. It's very important for each and every individual, I believe, because it's really important that we see the signs ourselves because the victim is already terrified. You can't expect them to reach out after that much of an abuse and the fear of their life. If you fear for your life, you won't reach out, but you'll still show the signs. You'll still show the kind of pain and also the stress that you are going through. So it is pretty visible, like you said, in the eyes and if you look and if you see, and um, I agree, that's where the people are, I would say, even I might have failed many people around me. But now listening to you, I definitely believe that uh, we need to keep an eye open for the people around us and help them out, just like you said, the paramedics too. So that also brings into the role of uh, the community and uh the family and the society, what do you think their role is in propagating the domestic violence and sexual abuse? And what are the things that need to be changed here? Yeah, one of the things, you know, I think all of us have coded, uh, heard, um, and I really don't know, but I'm gonna use those words to answer this question. You know how they say, it takes a village? to raise the child. Well, I want to know, where is that village? As the child grows up, as the child becomes a man and a husband and a father and then carries on, on his, what his duties are, where is that village for that little girl? You know, it's nice the village steps in when a baby's born because everybody loves the baby and wants to play. But where, where does their role end? You know, I think that needs to be redefined and revisited because the role doesn't end or else stop using that code where it takes a village to raise a child. Well, the child needs more help as they're growing up. So where was that village when this poor lady right after the wedding 
was in the hospital getting stitches because she was raped. Where was the community when I was doused with kerosene screaming for help somebody stop? Where was that community who were feet away from where I was being hung by my own sari? Where was that community when I was being pushed into a shark infested water while they were listening to my pleas and my begging? I want this community either to step in or completely take it out and let others who are willing to step in to that role without fear. To, uh, so I can call them a hero to step in because there are good men who want to say, Kamal, how do I get involved? I want to say to that man, please, brother, be mine and my sister's role model because the men they're married to need men like you. They need to hear from a man like you that abuse is not okay and that we men, fathers, brothers, will not tolerate your insanity. This is brutality. We need fathers and brothers and role models like those men. And they are good men. I've come across so many, and I'm sure you have. And I want them to start lobbying with us to the government. In Canada, we have one of the worst justice system where they almost side with the perpetrator. Their sentences for a murder is a joke. And I've heard people say, well, if you want to commit a crime, go to Canada. So, you know, uh, not to in any way glorify that saying, but I'm saying that it's time that we reached to our man and said, you're a good man. We acknowledge the good ones and we go for the ones that need the help. Because as much as the victims need help, so do the abusers. And let's now say that court mandated um, help for this uh, perpetrators has to be done. Yeah, that's a very, very important point, Kamal, because again, uh, if you keep on working with the victim survivors, it's not enough. It's really important, like you said, the abusers or the perpetrators, whatever the term people use for the people who uh, abuse. So the thing is, like, it's really important to work out with them as well, the solutions for the problem, not just blaming them. And also not just saying that, that yeah, this is... Uh, you are a wrong person but because if you begin with an accusation, nobody is going to listen to you. And I'm not justifying that. But at the same time, I believe that there are reasons behind a certain kind of a behavior. And if it is continuing and if the community, parents, family, friends, they step in and try to resolve it and try to find a solution to it, it would be good for both the person who is uh, going through an abusive relationship and the person who is creating that abuse in the families, because it's not just about one person. I believe that I heard somebody say that families are more like mobiles. So the mobiles that you hang and the, uh, or take an example of a chime, if you touch one, the whole chime moves. So it's not that if one person is affected, the other is not going to affect. So if the the person who is creating the abuse is also getting affected in the same way. So we yeah. need to figure that solution for. Yeah. And I just want to just add one point to it. You know, if abuse is learned, it can be unlearned. That's a very important point. Thank you for saying that, Kamal. That's where the whole thing is because unlearning, unlearning is difficult, but it's not impossible. It's not impossible. Exactly. Yeah, no, thank you so much. And the next thing that I wanted to ask you was like victim blaming is a very common thing in our community. So often a woman who wants to leave an abusive relationship, she's told to adjust, please adjust. It's a marriage. You have to work it out. And if she fails, the, in quotes, I would say the term fails. She's told that it's her fault that the marriage did not work out. And a divorced woman is still looked down upon. Somebody who has separated or has got a divorce is still looked down upon. Where are, uh, 
uh, whereas a divorced man is still considered marriageable and can get remarried easily and nobody even questions his past. In fact, he's encouraged. Yeah. Re- yeah, definitely. So do you think this also brings in a lot of kind of um, situations of domestic violence as well, because there is this patriarchal kind of... Uh, yeah. The moment you say to a woman, adjust, and I wish I could take that word out of our system completely. Uh, Why are we to adjust? You know, we adjust to his behavior, his abuse. We adjust to our in-laws abuse. We adjust, adjust, adjust by lying for for not just him, the behavior, the abuse, the in-laws. We, you know, this adjusting, in our mind has taken over. It's another form of abuse. And uh, no one comes to rescue us. You know, I've heard women, I've been to India number of times on conferences and women, high ranking women will say, well, we have to adjust. And I said, adjust to what? Well, what will people say? You know, we need to stop living for others because nobody, but nobody else is living for us. And so, you know, um, I have told people, and I don't usually say this word slightly, I have told some women, I said, do you wanna be happy? And they said, yeah. And I said, stop adjusting and leave. Find yourself, find your happiness, dream. Find out in your, that dream, what do you want? And then go for it. Oh, my parents won't allow a remarriage. I said, your parents have already divorced you. You've adjusted without them. So you'll adjust again. And you know what? Sometimes we have to, why are we, you know, we marry into the whole family, first of all. Um, But that man isn't married to my family. Um, We're not allowed to visit our family until we get his permission. So everything is based on it. When? Will we live our lives, no matter what religious group you believe, belong to, what your faith is all about. No God has ever said that you never go visit. This is it. The day you sign that paper, you belong to this man. You're his property. That's, you know, so excuse my language. That's bull. And, you know, we need to start living for ourselves if it means that this partner is wrong and he is going to move on. You know, his family is going to encourage him. They're going to bring him girls. You know, that Rishta is going to start coming in, you know. And I wanted to go back and give you a vision I had a while back was when I was writing my first book. I saw that, you know, I went to these women that were battered, bruised, you know, crying out for help. So I counseled them, you know, from one woman to another to another. And this woman moved on to, you know, other relationships or, uh, you know, other events in their lives. But then when I looked at the man, he also got other women. And those women were also leaving him. The root cause wasn't the women. It was the man. And we have to get to the man. They are the root cause. So, you know, um, uh, men are encouraged women or not, it is time for the change. It is time that we, I personally chose because of all my injuries, because of four children, because of, you know, certain insecurities, I chose to be single. But that doesn't mean I'm not enjoying life. You know, I'm, I'll be 60 in two weeks. And, you know, I still feel like I'm energetic. I still feel like, you know, I can run with my grandchildren. I can uh, do stuff because this was stuff I was never allowed to do. So what's stopping me is me. Yeah. And so to say to my victims and you, you know, to all those women out there, to the victims, even to men, remember your worth. You are so worthy. And to give that to somebody, that means you're selling yourself short. Don't do that. Yeah, that's that's very true. That's very true because that's how uh, culturally we are brought up uh, in South Asia that uh, 
women are to be subjugated women are to be um, in a family when they are when they go get married they have to listen to the in-laws not that it is bad the thing is like listen to the right things but they don't get that right to protest when something goes wrong or if there is abuse so that brings in another aspect uh, do you think uh, the groom's family or um, the girl's family of course but definitely there is this dynamic of staying in with the in-laws and where do they picture in this whole uh, scenario for you How, what would you like to say because there's a lot of kind of uh, Uh, conflicts because of uh, staying with the in-laws or their interference uh, on both the sides sometimes uh, how strange you know i work with so many different cultures and say the caucasian family they can't wait for their son or their daughter to be of age 18 19 to get out of the house yeah you know they help their children once they get married to settle in a different home they don't want to them with them they love them yeah living in a separate home doesn't mean it's hate doesn't mean oh we're we're not a family anymore i think you know now the girls are got getting to the place where um i want to live on my own but i will love you just as much you know i have chosen to marry a man out of my caste but that doesn't mean i stop loving but it's my body can i still love uh, to live somewhere else can i you know we go away would i take all my battalion with me and say now stay you know i think i wouldn't want my daughter-in-law to serve me or to stay with me you know right now by choice because we're building a house by choice i'm with them and by choice they want me because they love having me around to cook and clean <laughs> and you know so it's a very mutual thing and mm-hmm. we know our spaces and but if i was to live with my daughter-in-law i would say to her you know what i love and respect your decision but i'm also an independent person and i will love you and respect you even more you stay in your place. And so we have to get away from that mindset that you know to to love somebody means to stay with them, to serve them. Yeah. Um you know our sons start need to growing up. The day you get married you belong to somebody. You're somebody else's. Your priorities change a little bit. Your love for your mother is still there, but there's a separate kind of love for your wife. Yeah. so you know what our society has to move on yeah that's that's very true because we uh, do see lots of uh, cases where women do say that there is interference from the in-laws and there are also men uh, complaining of that so uh, that's very true that staying separate does not mean that you have stopped loving them it's just that you want that independent space that concept of space that concept of individuality which is not a bad thing uh how to balance that out is the key i believe um and that can like just you said that uh there's a distance that has to be maintained a space to be given to each individual and each relationship i also um like you mentioned so that's where i think we need to work on those situations so uh thank you for sharing that so um there's another question that i had in my mind which i wanted to ask you that uh like we've talked about that often the victim is told that why didn't you leave so do you think there's kind of like uh the fear of too much to lose that keeps them away and what made you decide to leave like i have read your book it's amazing and i couldn't put it down and all the time while i was reading i was crying and i was thinking how did she survive like it's 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 a lot it's a lot and then uh the thing is like the again the question came to my mind why didn't she leave but what made you decide that you have to leave and what gave you strength to move on right give me a few minutes to answer this um as it is it's not easy to answer yeah. that question uh i got married at 18 and 
you know, as a child getting into that marriage, I still consider myself a child bride. Um, you know, adjust, new set of rules. Now I have a new identity. Uh, I have a new family who's uh, very influential, not only just in the community, but in the country, in uh, businesses, in money, you know, please. And so fear took over right away. And as I began to adjust, um, violence erupted. And the violence just never stopped. It escalated where it was actions, uh, smaller actions, and then it abuse went into torture. And the more I gave in, the more I became his property and I was hooked. I did not have a voice. Um, I was beaten to the point where uh, my jaw was broken, my I was, you know, his intent was to take my eye. I was forced to drink poison. So my abuse went on and on. And as you say, the story um, was very hard to read, but extremely hard to live. There were four children at the end of that. Um, I had no money. I was married into a multi, multi millionaire family. Um, I had no access to money. I couldn't even confide in the maids. I had nothing. Um, I wanted to die, I couldn't die. I wanted to live, I couldn't live. It was, you know, I was half dead, half alive. And I didn't like where I was. I had no help. My parents, my family didn't step in to help. The, the system didn't help me, the system failed me. The police asked me, what was my role? What Indian woman does that? Um, stay home, have some isat or honor and stay home. Die if you have to, but die at the hands of your husband. My father said, I'll come get you one day. But dear, go back today. Come back, I'll come back for your body. Wow. How do you get out? Where do you go? when you're reaching out and everybody believes him. You are not believable. You are called all sorts of names, all sorts of labels are on you. And as if those labels are read by lookers. No one, not one person came to me. And where was I go? I was in more fear to leave than to stay. At least if I stayed in and he killed me, I had witnesses, but he would have killed me and my family if I had left. So in order to protect them, I stayed. I had nowhere to go. So finally, when I broke, when I was ready to die, I wasn't ready to die alone because by this time my face was smashed. My jaw was broken. Somehow there was bit in my spirit that wasn't crushed by him. And that was the survivor's instinct. And that told me, don't die, don't give in. That was the point when he was pushing me into the, uh, into the ocean. And that night, something in me said, live. And so I went to my father-in-law and for the first time I uttered this word. Dad, if you don't send me and my four children back home, which is Canada, I will kill your son. I will tell the media what you guys are about. One of us is going to die here. And that, saying that word, somehow gave me some sense of power that it came out. What I, even if they killed me, I at least tried. Yeah. And I came back. I didn't come back with my kids. They took my kids away. But I fought. By then, I had this fighter spirit in me. I got my older two children within months. And then I went and kidnapped. And I don't encourage your 
viewers, your listeners to do that. I went and I kidnapped my two young children, five and six years old. You were not given any other option, Kamal. That's what I would say. No option. I begged. I threatened. I went to the authorities. I did. I waited two and a half years for an answer. Yeah. Waiting for your child an hour to come home from school. I see moms cry. Yeah. For me, two and a half years and not knowing if they were alive or dead. And so my only option was to put myself in that, you know, even if I died, I died trying. And I went and I did kidnap them. I was arrested, that, you know, it's in the book. And uh, I got them. Today, my family is complete. Today, I'm not a mother of four. I'm a grandmother. Uh, I mean, I'm a mother of four, but a grandmother of six. And, you know, I look at the joy. I could have been dead at 18. But here I am almost 60, going stronger than I ever was. Yeah, I know. That's that's the beautiful fighting spirit you have, Kamal, and that inspires while I'm talking to you. And I'm definitely sure whosoever listens to this podcast or views this would definitely understand. And like you said, uh, it's, it's difficult to wait for a child, even if for an hour till they come back from school, if they get delayed a little bit, you're always scared. Five minutes, the bus got, gets late and you're looking and you start calling and waiting for two and a half years was too much. I definitely, um, I don't know, like I would say, I don't have words for that, for your courage and for your uh, faith in yourself. And I really, really admire that spirit of yours. And I hope that it will definitely inspire. It has inspired me and it will definitely inspire the viewers and listeners as well. So uh, one important part that I wanted to talk to you about was like how to move beyond the abuse, because that's what you are epitome of for me and for the people who would read the book, they'll realize. So, and uh, we would definitely like to know more um, how uh, the victim survivors can move beyond the abuse. Yes. You know, uh, I think Talking about abuse, a lot of us know what abuse is. A lot of us may have experienced it. But let's, you know, such an important question and a topic is, how do you move past? Yeah. You know, first take off those labels that has been attached to you, labels of useless, worthless, good for nothing. You'll never amount to anything. No one will ever like you. No one will believe you. You know what? Give it back to him. I say give back uh, what's not yours to its rightful owners. Yeah. So, you know, I, the labels that were given to me, uh, yeah, I lost what I looked like, but that doesn't matter. I, I am a very humble, kind, loving person, and that should show in my face. It's in my heart. If I don't look good, it's not for anybody else. Um, I began to dream. I began to dream because I wanted to be a nurse. <laughs> that was my biggest goal, be a nurse. Um, and I thought, okay, uh, but I want to be in the helping profession. I want to let people know there's life after abuse. And even though I was against the world, I'm going to have a name. And it wasn't out of anything that I was going to get famous, that I was going to have money. I left millions behind. So it wasn't anything like that. It was about me and my children and how I wanted to give my children a life that they deserved because they, up until that, they didn't have a life. What they had was fear. And so I thought that if I could do something that would make my son and my, my sons and my daughters secure, that would be a great achievement. And so I started small uh, workshops where I would attend to learn how to be a good parent. Um, I learned how to talk to them and not to talk down to them. And one thing I never did was I never brought up their father yeah. or what he did in the home. And so we talked positive. And um, so, you know, I went back to school. I did my social work. I learned counseling. I worked in that field. And then I found out my jaw was broken. And so as I'm going through uh, 
this brokenness and this surgery and I'm unable to talk when I wasn't able to talk and had uh, wires in my teeth for six weeks, which meant I couldn't eat. My children were very happy. No more yelling. <laughs> Mom doesn't have to tell us what to do. And it, it was the worst way, if you're thinking of losing weight, worst way to lose weight. But in that silence and in that time where I could have been very bitter because I was going through this difficult surgery because of this, you know, I could call him all sorts of names, uh, because of him. And yet what I did with my time was dream of what where I could be after my jaw healed. So I started to think of, what if I wrote? What if I journaled? What if I shared my story with a group of five women? What if I empowered one woman? And so that, you know, as time went on, birthed into a story of my book. And so I wrote Black and Blue Sari, and that became a number one seller. That wasn't my goal. My goal was to reach out to few. And from there, you know, I got opportunities to come to U.S. to speak to the World Bank, um, uh, the U.N., you know, all sorts of um, uh, places that, you know, the Senate, the senators of U.S. were inviting me. It was just a way of them to learn from resilience. Yes. And, you know, we call children resilient, but I want women, I want men who have lost it. I want them to know that there are good people out there. When you surround yourself with good people, when you surround yourself with good thoughts, people want to be around you. And I have, even with a broken jaw. See, my husband did everything to silence me. So when I was with him for 12 and a half years plus the two and a half years in hiding, I didn't talk. But unknowing to him, he actually gave me a platform, a very large platform where I now speak about what he did to me to give hope to others. Yeah. Don't, you know, don't give in. The, the last thing, the biggest favor you would do to him is be silent and give in. And the, uh, others that are either silent are enablers. Others that are silent or take his side are also enablers. Don't be neutral. Take her side. Yeah. That's, that's very true. And I really love the word that you said, dream, because that's where the hope lies. That's right. And, and that's where the life can still continue because it's, it's difficult to survive. It's difficult to kind of forget and uh, forgive as well. But at the same time, I would say that it's really important to move beyond, just like you said, you have to keep on moving, like you built a life for yourself and for your children, uh, and also found that voice. So don't be silent and don't stop dreaming. So that's the message I have gleaned from what you said just now. And it's, it's a beautiful message that I think our viewers and our audience would definitely listen to. Uh, so that brings me to the last question of uh, this interview, uh, Kamal, what message would you, would you like to give to the people listening to the podcast? That's a very cliche kind of a question, I know, but definitely I think with your beautiful experience of talking to people and helping people, you would have something that would strike uh, someone in uh, a chord in someone's heart and they might change. So that's my hope when I ask this. Yeah, so to the victims, I, I would say to them and to their family, their children, I would say, we hear you, we know you, and we believe you. Don't ever think that even the darkest secret that you have, um, that is not in plain sight, we believe you. Abuse doesn't show. 
you know, my bruises may show and they will fade by the time you come. But what is unseen is the depth of your suffering. And I want you to know that we understand and we believe you and we as a whole community are here to help you. Be silent no more. Start to engage, start to talk, start to get your life back. And to those that are enablers, that are abusers, you need as much help. You are also cared for, but we will not tolerate the amount of abuse that you incite on others. So I'm here to tell both parties that you are cared for, there is help for both of you, and you, none of you have to suffer in silence. If you have an addiction, there's help. If you please reach out and get that help, you will help have a healthy and a loving home that you have also at one point dreamt about. To the victims, I love you. I understand you. And so does this agency. Please reach out to them. They are here for you. They care for you. Everything that you tell them is confidential and is believable. Come out, be strong, make a difference. Show your daughters, your sisters, your mothers, your community, the change that you have acquired and the person that you've become and the role model that you are to others. So don't stop there. Keep going, even in your hard days. Keep smiling, keep dreaming, keep journaling, keep hoping, because it will come to pass. Thank you. Thank you so much for the beautiful message, Kamal. And it has been really a pleasure talking to you and listening to your ideas. And I'm definitely, like I have been saying time and again, I'm definitely sure that people would learn a lot from this podcast. And we really appreciate your time and your coming to talk about domestic violence and how to move beyond that. Thank you so much, Kamal. Thank you for all you do. And before we end today's talk, I would like to share with you a poem by a local artist and poet, Sanjukta Mitra, which resonates a lot with the spirit of a domestic violence survivor, or maybe every woman. So here it comes. The title of the poem is, I Will. I will. I will rise. I will hold all my fears and sorrows. I will rise. Deep inside, I know I'm strong. Above the fire, I will rise. Hurt I am, yet I will break the shackles of pain. I will stop ruminating about the past and will fly with the wings of my inner strength. I will. I will unleash the dropathy in me. I will. I will be a victor, not a victim. I will. And to the spirit of all the wonderful women who were once victims but are now survivors and victors, keep on listening to Seva Podcast, South Asian Voices.